verse 8 through chapter 2, verse 6. Let us hear the word of the Lord. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word... God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. You may have heard the news this past week. Doubtless you did. Rather frightening and shocking detail came up this past week as the media reported news from Saudi Arabia. You will recall that there were apparently some terrorists involved in a shooting attack upon a bus in which several windows were shot out and several people people injured. The authorities of Saudi Arabia were obviously quite active in seeking to find the attackers in order to get them off the streets. In the present circumstances, such an incident, though perhaps it would go unremarked in any one of our larger cities, it made international news. The shocking part was the report of the punishments meted out to those found guilty of such crimes of terrorism in Saudi Arabia. And those were the death penalty or the loss of a limb. Now such penalties, even when they are punishment for potentially deadly attacks, are extremely sobering. But as we have seen, as we've read from 1 John today, We have read the official news from heaven concerning your status and my status. Officially speaking, we all have the sentence of death passed upon us. That most final of all punishments has been given to each and every one of us. Despite cries of, I'm innocent, the death penalty is rightfully ours. And that penalty, that sentence, it will be carried out one way or another. For our crimes cannot and will not go punished because the price must be paid. Now perhaps you remember the Old Testament standard. From Leviticus 24, beginning with verse 17, it goes like this. If anyone takes the life of a human being, he must be put to death. If anyone injures his neighbor, whatever he has done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured the other, so is he to be injured. Now today that standard seems as harsh as the Islamic law of Sharia. But both laws pale in comparison with God's law that affects and applies totally to the relationship between man and between God and with God. For his law that applies to our relationship with him is stark. It's black and white. In Romans 5.12, the verse following what Steve read for us this morning, we read, Therefore... Just as sin has entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, 
because all sin. And in the first part of Romans 6.23, we read, For the wages of sin is death. There can be no doubt that in God's eyes, sin is loathsome. It is always punishable by death because it is so totally foreign to him and to who he is. The message from this passage that rings loud and clear, the message from these verses that I have quoted, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, we understand that after the therefore, there is a promise of hope. Just as in Romans 6.23, the first part of the verse is for the wages of sin is death, and there is a great promise following that. All of these hold out a most special and glorious promise. There's no doubt about it. As we can see it, we can see that promise brought to life in our passage. But that promise cannot and will not become reality until the conditions are met. Until they are satisfied. What do prison inmates doing time in jail and wealthy, secure people who have all the comforts that life can offer What do these two groups of people have in common? This one characteristic of human nature. Both declare their lack of guilt. Inmates prosecuted and convicted of various crimes. And wealthy, comfortable, secure people who have never been in a courtroom, who have never seen anything more of a jail than the brick walls and the gates and the fences surrounding the perimeter. Both groups, in so many cases, will say exactly the same thing. I haven't done anything wrong. I've done nothing to be punished for. Now we naturally suspect the truthfulness of inmates when they say this. Because we realize we live in a system which presumes innocence until guilt is proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And we are looking at inmates then who are suffering punishment having been accused and prosecuted and convicted of a crime by a judge and jury, and so we assume that they are guilty. We don't believe it when they say they're innocent so often. Yet the truth is that those who have seen no more than the outer walls of a prison, when they say, I've never done anything wrong, there's nothing the matter with me. What's wrong with me? I'm just fine. In every day and in every way, I'm getting better and better. They're lying just as much as the inmate who speaks of his innocence behind bars is lying. Because God's word maintains the truth of this. Now the point is not to pick on the wealthy or to pick on inmates. But the point instead is to to focus on God's word and see what it says. And we see from this passage that any who make a claim of innocence before God are lying. Verse 8 of our passage strikes at the very heart of our culture and at the very heart of mankind. We read it. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Yet it is only natural for people to be self-righteous, constantly proclaiming innocence for all to hear. What happens when we proclaim our innocence our lack of having done anything wrong, is that we are refusing to acknowledge that we deserve punishment and that we need help to stop doing wrong and to start doing what is righteous, what is clearly right according to God's standard. When we do this, when we make this claim that we are without sin, I'm okay. 
The problem isn't just that that we are lying. There is an even greater problem which leads to a terrible danger. And that greater problem is that really what will happen is as we say, I'm okay, yeah, I don't need any of that stuff. I don't need forgiveness. The problem is that we'll convince ourselves. That's the worst danger of all. Now, I know a lady who was blind for a number of years. Whenever she came to visit us, she flew into O'Hare Airport with a friend. She used a cane in her hands to get around our house. And she made all kinds of crafts with her hands because she could no longer do the things that she had enjoyed doing when she was able to see. She managed quite well as a blind person, having arranged her household and everything according to her handicap. But the truth of the matter came out as she visited one doctor after another after another. And the truth was that she wasn't physically blind. Her eyes were fine. The connection of the optic nerves to her brain were fine. Her brain was fine. Everything was in working order. And this may blow your mind, but the fact was that her blindness was totally psychological. For some reason, she had convinced herself that she was literally physically blind without any help available. And though the truth was only whispered, never discussed with her directly, the blindness went away some years later as quickly and completely as it had come upon her. For whatever reasons, she had confused herself. She had told herself that she was getting blind and that, that she was blind. And by so doing... She had blinded herself so that she could no longer see the world or when seeing that she would no longer recognize that she was seeing until in her mind she unblinded herself again after a number of years. Strange story. But what she did with her eyesight is something that the world, people around us, perhaps even some of us do daily as they tell themselves that they are not sinners. I'm okay. There's nothing the matter with me. I don't need any of that stuff. That they have no need for a sinner to take away their sins. For there's nothing wrong with their lives. Now many of us would like to dodge the charge that that could ever have applied to our lives. We would say, well, yes, I have done things that are wrong. Definitely, I've done things that are wrong. But I'm certainly not as bad as those people down in the Bristol, Virginia jail. Or I'll never be anything like as bad as the real criminals spending time in the pen or on death row, the terrorists throughout the world. I don't even light a candle to those people. Therefore, I'm fine. The nature of sin is such that comparisons are unnecessary. In other words, if I have done one thing which is against God's law, then I am as much a sinner in his sight as though I had committed every evil that has been done since the beginning of time. Now this is one of the curses of being good people. That we can so easily think that we are without sin because there are so many people who are such worse people than we are Whereas in the final result, those people who are worse than we are may have their eyes opened 
to the sin in their lives. And the good people will go around thinking, I'm so good, that the people who are worse off will end up better off because in recognizing their sin, they will take hold of the offer of forgiveness that we see here in our passage. And the good people will never grasp a hold of it. Verse 9 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now we, we have understood and we see that God's justice demands punishment for sin. But we see here through this that in the same way that His justice demands punishment, His mercy is offering a way out. But there is only one way. We'll see as we look to chapter 2, verse 2, how that way is made possible if His justice requires death for sin. But here before us is the way presented. We each stand before God as individuals, not as a group, but I stand alone before Him. And when I stand before God, I cannot say, but I wasn't as bad as Him over there. Instead, my sins are sufficient by themselves to condemn me. And there is only one way out, which is to quit lying to myself. To quit thinking that I'm a good person. To quit thinking that by being good, I can erase all the bad things I ever did. As if I put them on the scale, good, bad. Oh, the bad's a little... I better, I better help the, do the Boy Scouts thing and help the old lady across the sidewalk. Okay, That's impossible. You cannot make the scales equal out in that way. Being good is not good enough. The message here is by its statement making us realize that only by owning up to our wrongs, by admitting our sins, by saying to God, God, you are right in your assessment of me. You are right, God. I have done so much that is wrong by my failure to love you. It is my fault and my sin that I have not recognized Jesus Christ as the Son of God and my Savior. It is sin against you that I have wronged my family members and hurt them. It is sin against you when I have disobeyed your law in any way by hardening my heart. It is sin against you even when I have done wrong to my own body. I recognize this. I confess it to you. I have sinned in so many ways. But what I want is this one thing. Now that I have seen how dirty I am, I want to be made clean. I want forgiveness. I need your forgiveness to be made right with you and to gain your help in order to live a life that is clean in the future because I love you. Now that's the core of the gospel. It is so hard to get people to be willing to listen to that message about sin and the need for confession before God, the need for repentance and forgiveness. But it is even harder than getting people to listen to that message to make them realize the truth of it and put it to practice in their lives. We think specifically perhaps about our community and our culture. And there are many people with great wealth with whom we live and work and go to school. To them, money, material possessions, and a good job, these are all things that are a good buffer to make them feel good about themselves. And people need to feel good. They can buy what they need. They can go to the country club where people are friendly. 
For them, everything is designed for comfort, security, and pleasantry. How does sin fit into a lifestyle where you can get anything you want and everyone shows proper respect for your status? It doesn't. Because there is nothing and no one to shake you up in your feeling of security and self-righteousness. And friends, in circumstances, cultural circumstances like this, are programmed that it is not cool to speak about sin. It isn't proper social conversation to say, so how did you sin this past week? Unless you're joking. For such people, hearing the message is the first problem because others are not likely to bring up the fact that any people who appear to have everything going for them could have something wrong. That there could be a chink in that armor. And for them as for everyone, only the hand of God can make them realize that sin is a personal problem that each person needs to deal with before God. A problem that all the money in the world cannot solve. An eternal issue that will be fully realized only when possessions, money, and worldly influence are left behind forever in death. And at the same time, there are many people around us with much fewer resources. And for them, the barriers to recognizing their sinfulness are equally as great, though often they're quite different. For in our culture, as has happened in any culture where Christianity is taught, people confuse churchianity with Christianity. Instead of coming to grips with the reality of personal sin and their personal need for confession and forgiveness to be made right with God, such people think the church is the answer. If they belong to a church, regardless of whether or not they go, or if they go to the church faithfully, then they're in the select group. Or if they're in a particular denomination, or in between denominations. Or if they're good, that they can earn forgiveness by that balancing scale act. Or even that if they are baptized, that is the same thing as forgiveness. Now, all of these are distractions. They're dangerous distractions, terribly dangerous distractions from the primary message of God's word as proven here. We are all dirty with sin. All people are dirty with sin. Everyone throughout history has enough sin, even if that person has only sinned once in life. Enough sin to be most justly condemned by a righteous God to eternal condemnation. That is the truth of the matter. And only God's way can offer us hope. His way is to confess our sins and rely upon Him through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to save us and to make us righteous. That we would all see that comfort and security, that financial well-being, the good works and the like, that none of these are any security whatsoever in our relationship with God. When we have not made confession of our sins before the Almighty God, there is only that deadly certainty. But, and here is the promise, the golden gleam that comes after all this weight of conviction, when you see it, that sin is a part of your life, whether once 
or millions of times you have sinned. Here is the golden gleam. Should you and I, in our own hearts, give up comparing ourselves with others and admit to God that I am sinful, desiring Jesus' death to make me righteous, then we are guaranteed, we have a promise in verse 9, that because he is faithful and just, he will forgive us. He has promised it. He will do it. If we do that wonderful thing, that small, tiny thing, confess your sins. He will no longer remember our sin and guilt. And there is comfort and blessing in those words that go beyond all earthly pleasures. But he goes even farther than that. He doesn't just say, and I will forgive you. He says that we will never be the same after we have recognized sin and done what's necessary to have it removed from us. At that point, he will begin a new work in us, which is that he will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. That means that we will be being remade after confession. At that point where we have seen that we are dirty, when we confess our sins and rely upon him to take it away, he clears it away and he says, okay, now human people, human beings are sinful creatures. We know that. That's why we've confessed. And he says, I'm going to make you new. I'm going to make you so that you are different, so that you are no longer content to move in that old path, which was sin and refusal to recognize it. I'm going to make you move in a new path, which is being purified so that you are righteous. Many see the gospel of confession and forgiveness as being reason to excuse sin. But John clearly wants us to see that this is not the purpose of forgiveness. The purpose of God's forgiveness in our lives is to give us the comfort, the joy, and the security of knowing we are right with the Almighty. He no longer looks on us as rebellious people because we are sinning against Him once forgiveness has taken place. But instead as children, recognizing our desperate need for compassion, seeking what He alone can offer to us the removal that is all, of all that is wrong and dirty from our lives, the peace of a two-ray relationship in which we can know Him, we can know God, the one that we have never seen, <clears throat> the quiet in our souls of knowing that we are pure, that all of our guilt has been taken away, that is one of the most blessed things that comes with forgiveness. And the certainty beyond that of a place for eternity. Now we realize as we look at confession here that confession means forgiveness and it means being purified to be righteous. So we realize that confession doesn't just mean a momentary thing. It means a willingness to be remade by God, a desire to become holy and righteous people. And the proof of the reality and sincerity long-term of our confession of sins is revealed in chapter 2, verse 3. I haven't skipped verse 2, but we'll go back to it. Verse 3 says, We know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. And further in verse 6, Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. Now, as you see in the verses in between verse 3 and 6, there is an ample comparison by a negative example 
of the fact that there can be a confession that is not real. People can say that they have confessed and not really have meant it. But as we read what comes after confession, that obedience follows, it could be easy for us to say, okay, now, now, now that I've confessed, it's back to works, the scale here again, okay? I, I made right once, so now let's get on the scale and <laughs> see if I need to gain a pound or lose a pound on which side. But our main goal is not that. Our main goal is not once we have gained forgiveness to start working to earn our salvation. We can't do that. We couldn't do it in the first part. We can't do it in the second part, which is after that initial forgiveness. What our obedience is, is it's a flowing forth of love for the Lord in tangible ways. And if obedience, as we see here, is not there in our lives, if we aren't walking in imitation of Christ, endeavoring to please Him by everything we do, then there is no love for the Lord present within us. No truth alive within us, no knowledge of God within us. It is impossible to know God without loving Him. That is what knowing God is. It is impossible to love God without obeying Him. Forgiveness and salvation cost nothing to me and to you. They are free. But our lives with the Lord as Savior will cost us everything beyond that point because love demands all. We conclude by seeing the price that has been paid for our forgiveness. And this is the gem of the whole passage. You remember as we began studying the passage that I read several verses from other parts of Scripture, all of which referred to the penalty of sin being justly death. And following the death sentence for sin, all of those verses alike, uh, the first one was, for the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Okay, that was the part I didn't read, that last part. So they promised this gift. This golden lining is there. But by looking at how God is described in verse 9, He is just and righteous and will forgive us our sins. We say, now wait a second. Justice demands punishment. Justice demands that whatever penalty is deserved, it will be carried out. We would not consider a judge in our community just who said, okay, you did that. I mean, imagine going into a courtroom with a traffic violation and the guy said, you did that, but go ahead. Well, that might be nice to me, but one of you over there would say, hey, wait a second, I got one of those and I had to pay something. Justice means if there is a crime committed and it is proven beyond a doubt, the punishment must also be suffered as well. How could a just God not give the death penalty to each one of us because we have seen that we deserve it? The answer is found in the first two verses of chapter 2, and particularly in two words, summed up in two words of verse 2, atoning sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice. What does all that mean? In Hebrews 9.22, we read, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 
So we see that sin demands death. That sin demands the shedding of blood for it to be cleansed. And we realize that if Jesus Christ was the atoning sacrifice, that the penalty was paid, that the punishment was accepted and was carried out completely. Jesus is the one who received the penalty. But how can one man, how can one person take on my guilt and your guilt and anybody in the world's guilt who will trust in him? Because he is also, as he is described in this verse, the righteous one without sin. If he had sinned, he could not die for me. He could not die for you. But instead, he is the righteous one. And he has chosen to take that penalty upon himself. So that all who would confess their sins would have that hope of salvation. It would become real. So God did have his justice satisfied by Jesus' death. And because he sacrificed his life, our sins have been paid for. The atonement has been accomplished if we will do that one thing, which is confess. It's been accomplished regardless of whether or not we will confess. But it has been accomplished for me. And why would I look at, look at the gems that are found in this passage and say, hey, that's great, you know, but I don't need that. There's no point in looking at it if we don't say the atonement means nothing unless it is applied in my life. There is a gift there. Am I going to leave it sitting? I need it. I certainly won't leave it sitting. I want the atonement personally. Now John says that his goal for his children in Christ is this. I write this to you so that you will not sin. That is the goal, holiness. Not just continued forgiveness and forgiveness and forgiveness. But since we know that forgiveness and forgiveness and forgiveness will continue to be needed because we will not be completely perfected until we reach the heavenly realms, the safety net remains and we read this. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So we can just picture him in heaven. The Father and the Son seated there together. And as the Father sees us, his children, we are made right with him because we have confessed and believed in Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, he sees that he's working this righteousness, purity within us. But at the same time, we fail. We continue to fail. We continue to fail. And as he looks at that, he cannot stand sin. How can he put up with us? But we're now his children. And I suggest to you that this is a picture of what happens. The Father is there and the Son is seated right beside Him. And He sees me down here. Just going about my merry old way. Doing whatever I do that is sin in His sight. It could be anything. And He can't stand it. He looks over to the Son. And there He sees hands with nail scars. Feet with nail scars. A side punctured by a spear? What greater love could someone have for another than this and that he would lay down his life? And so the Father sees us and there we are, impure, despite the fact that we have said, okay, I need your help. I need your forgiveness. I trust in you. And we continue to go wrong. And he looks to the Son. And there is the one who loved us enough to die. 
And there is the one whom the Father saw suffer and die for our sins. And so that is putting flesh into these words. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so as we continue to sin, we see that picture of the Father and the Son seated together in heaven. The Son's wounds continually being looked at because they are the means of continuing to forgive us. He has patience with us and he forgives us again and again and again. With such a picture before us of such love, mercy, sacrifice, and grace being demonstrated to us, how could we but accept his evaluation of your sinfulness and my sinfulness? How could we do less than repent, than confess our sins and know him? How could we do less than love him with an overwhelming love? How could we do less As we think of a sacrificed Savior, of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, then burst forth with the evidence of our love, demonstrated in every area of our lives. As we look at this whole passage, and we think of the wonderful and incomparable reality that it speaks for each one of us, and of anyone in the world who will take that passage and say, I've taken off my blinders. I see. This is what it's all about. All we can say is, as the hymn says it, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. Dear Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in each one of our hearts to convict us of the truth of your word, to convict us of the fact that being good is not satisfactory that being good will get us no place, but that instead we are sinful people. If we have sinned once or a thousand times, we have done what is necessary to gain your condemnation. And even because of the sin of Adam, we are sinful when we are born and therefore deserve only your punishment. We ask your Holy Spirit to bring that conviction to bear in our lives. We ask as well as you convict us of our need for forgiveness, of our need to be cleansed, so you would make us see that there is hope, that we might not wallow in our sinfulness and despair, but that instead we might see the hope of this verse 9 that we have understood and read, that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Bring this to bear in our lives. Make our lives fruitful with confession and with a forgiveness that only comes from you. Give us a trust in Jesus Christ that will carry us from here to eternity. We pray that you would help us too as we realize that our lives will continue to not not meet up to the mark that you have set before us in your word and in the life of Jesus, whose life we are to be following. We ask that you would keep us from despairing there too. But work in us your miracle of holiness and righteousness. Give in us hope. Cause us to look to Jesus Christ and not to our failures. To take everything before him because of his death on the cross. We thank you that there is hope 
greater than all the sin of the world because there is Jesus Christ, the one through hope comes. We ask all this in his name who brings us forgiveness. Jesus Christ, amen.